starting chapter nine. We are going to talk about nucleophilic substitution and beta elimination. This first video will just be about nucleophilic substitution and we'll get into um, beta elimination in the second part of the video. So what is nucleophilic substitution? Nucleophilic substitution is when you have a nucleophile that replaces a leaving group, which I will often abbreviate to LG. And as you know, the abbreviation for nucleophile is NUC, sometimes with a lone pair, sometimes with a negative charge, depending on what I'm trying to do. If you remember nucleophile, the difference between a nucleophile and electrophile, right? A nucleophile is nucleus loving, an electrophile is usually positively charged electron loving. So let's start with the, the most basic nucleophilic substitution that you've seen before. It's going to be the nucleophilic substitution of halo alkanes. Now, I will say that the models I'm going to teach are, are outdated. They've updated them since this textbook uh, was first printed. It's a relatively new update. So the, the general ideas still kind of apply, but they have changed in the, in the recent past. So do know that this information is a little outdated. But yeah, so the general idea for a nucleophilic uh, substitution of a halo alkane, which hopefully you can figure out what reaction I'm talking about when we do this. So let's say I have a negatively charged nucleophile plus a halo alkane. It will give me the nucleophile replaces the um, halogen, and you end up with X minus. This can happen in two different ways. There's two different mechanisms. So let's talk about the mechanisms. So you have a first one. The one that's kind of the easiest to get is SN2. This is a bimolecular reaction where bond breaking and bond forming occur at the same time. Occur simultaneously. I just put too many L's there. Simultaneously. So I like to think of this as, um, let's say you're hanging out in like the quad or the student center, I don't know, whatever, whatever you're talking to like one of your friends and <laughs> your friend is looking behind you and they're like, oh, you're somebody that you don't want to talk to is coming. You're like, it's your professor or whatever, right? For a class you have. And so your friend starts to back away as the professor comes in to behind you. And so you turn around to meet your professor so you can say hi as your friend leaves you. So it happens at the same time, right? Like your friend sees the professor is like, oh no, I don't want to talk to that professor. They start to back up. You turn around being like, why are you being weird? And it's like, oh, your professor's right here. Hi, how you doing? Okay, so it's bimolecular. So, and the bimolecular means that there are two species involved 
in the rate limiting step. And the rate limiting step is what's dictating uh, the type of mechanism. So if you remember from a little bit of kinetics from Gen Chem, we talked about like, oh, the rate law, right, was something like rate equals K times A times B or whatever, and you need to figure out exponents and all that stuff. So th that's kind of where this all relates back to. So the SN2 reaction, let's do some, do our favorite game of color, color coding. So let's say I have OH minus. So OH minus is going to be my nucleophile. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's going to attack methyl bromide. And I'm going to draw this in a weird way for a reason. There's an H over here. You got an H over here, and you have a wedge H. So in an SN2 reaction, you're going to have a pair of electrons from the OH minus attack the carbon, right? Because the carbon, if you remember, has a slightly positive charge. Whereas the bromine has a slightly negative charge due to the difference in electronegativity. And so as the OH uh, minus attacks the carbon, the bromine is going to leave at the same time. Uh, color am I in purple? As you remember, everything's in equilibrium in organic chem. So what you'll end up with is this. What I want you to notice is what happened to the hydrogens on the carbon when this reaction occurred. You should notice that there is what we call an inversion of stereochem. Now, mind you, this is not a chiral center because there's three hydrogens, so it's obviously not a chiral center, but you do notice there's a change in space. So it's an inversion of stereochem. This process here is what we call a backside attack. Still hear a lot of jokes about this. You talk to any um, organic chemist at some point. But yeah, so this is a backside attack and this is what causes the inversion of stereochem. All right, so that's the mechanism. So you draw those two arrows at the same time. The other possible mechanism is the SN1. which is a unimolecular reaction. Where bond breaking is completed before bond formation. So I like to think of this as, again, if you're um, hanging out with a friend and they're like, oh, I got to go to class. And you're like, all right, cool, bye. And you're still waiting around for something, whatever. So like your friend walks off and you're like, cool, whatever. And then another friend comes up to you and you're like, oh, hey, what's up? And you end up in a conversation. So the first friend completely leaves, like you can't see them anymore before the next friend comes in. And then the next friend at no point saw the first friend, had no idea the first one had never been there. So that's like, I'm sitting here waving like you can see me and you cannot, but whatever. So that's how that uh, SN1 works. SN1 works. And because it's a unimolecular reaction, it means that your that means that one species, specifically the leaving group, all right, 
is involved in the rate determining step. All right, and if you're wondering what all this SN1, SN2 stands for, it's the S stands for substitution. The N stands for nucleophilic. And then the one and the two tell you if it's unimolecular or bimolecular. So let's do an example of what a SN1 reaction would look like. So let's take a different variation of our earlier molecule. So we'll do this. We'll call it a CH3. We'll do some dashes, call it a CH3. Let me scroll if I can't see my screen anymore. CH3. And now you've got, I'm just going to use generic leaving group because it could be a, a lot of things and we'll talk about what they are in a minute. I do want to bring your attention to what the difference is between the two um, electrophiles in this, or in this case. So in the SN2 mechanism, this was a primary haloalkane. This is a tertiary haloalkane in the SN1. Um, I can't spell alkane anymore. The SN1 mechanism. So, and that is important. And we'll talk about that in more depth very shortly. Uh, well, I guess in two recordings around. The first step in an SN1 reaction is that the leaving group just leaves. Like, it's just like, all right, cool, buy them out. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, and so you end up with this CH3, kind of trigonal planar type carbocation, right? So it's, it's doing that and it's like, I guess everything's cool. <laughs> and in the meantime, you have a nucleophile. And I do want you to notice that this nucleophile has a lone pair of electrons, but it's not negatively charged. It's going to attack the carbocation. Give another equilibrium. And you will end up with here. Um H three O H X two to C. And note that now these methyl groups, the CH3s that were attached, they can be in any configuration. So there's this in the middle step when I have the methanol attacking the carbocation, because it's planar, it can come from any direction. So there is no predicting stereochem in the case of an SN1 reaction. But yeah, so we have this, but now since we have an extra bond to oxygen, we have um, a positive charge. Now, this is where things get kind of fun. You'll have some kind of base. Now, this could either be more methanol. It could be um, the leaving group. A lot of things can do this. You don't necessarily have to specify for me if you just want to put base, put like a letter B and um, a lone pair, you can do that. It's going to take this proton so that oxygen can get back to being neutral. So this has got a lot more steps in terms of the mechanism than SN2, CH3, because I don't feel like drawing that a lot. That's how it works. So um, what did I want to bring your attention to? But yeah, OK, so there's no predicting stereochem. 
because of the because of planar intermediate, which is specifically this carbocation species. So in the case of SN2, this, the first step is the rate determining step. In the case, and note that it's both the nucleophile attacking and the leaving group leaving. In the case of an SN1, this first step is the part that dictates the speed. It's the leaving group leaving. So you will get um, racemic mixture with SN1. And so, oops, I didn't mean to hit the eraser. So SN1 means racemic product. Whereas SN2 is going to be inversion of stereochem. If there is, I mean, it's an inversion of stereochem, whether it's a chiral center or not. So just keep that in mind. But if it's not a chiral center, then you can't dictate. So the one way I like to think this is if you're, if your starting material is R, it's going to end up, the product is going to be S. And that's a good way to remember it. So let's take a pause while you work through these mechanisms. And then I will go into the factors that influence SN1 versus SN2. Once I find my mouse. Let's talk about the factors that influence SN1 and SN2. Now, there's a bunch of different ways to present this information. You can use a table. I'm going to list it, but I do want you to take a minute and reorganize this in a way you can, you can easily interpret when you're trying to make this decision. So let's talk first about, uh, let's, let's be a little bit colorful. I'm going to use my, my pink and green because, yeah, why not? So factors that relate to SN1 considerations. Maybe I'll just do both of them side by side. That's probably a better way to do it. All right. So then we'll do, I'll probably, I need more space than that. Not stupid. Okay. Um, SN2 considerations. I hope you're having a good day if you're listening to this and watching this. I hope that, you know, you're taking a minute. I know we're getting into the, this, for me, this is the hardest chapter. Some people, they really click with it. For me, I've always struggled. So I'm there with you. So let's say the first thing we're going to talk about is the relative stability of the carbocation. So this is specific to SN1 because there is no carbocation in SN2. So you should be pretty familiar now with the fact that we know that tertiary is the most stable, whereas primary is the least stable. So why does this matter? If you remember, the first step is for the leaving group to leave. So you need a really stable carbocation to give the nucleophile enough time to attack the breaker. So it's important because need time after LG leaves for nuke to attack. Okay. Additionally, another one that you can need to keep in mind is primary allylic carbocations 
are more stable than just primary carbocations. And so the answer, the question that I have for that is why? If you think about, let's do a quick interlude here. So this is what we would call an allylic primary uh, carbocations. This is a primary allylic versus a primary carbocation. What do you see that's different? You should know this because we talk about this all the time and I told you it would come up over and over again. So that's the reason why I look. So anytime you can stabilize a carbocation further, it's always going to be more stable than the uh, stationary version. So keeping in line with that, your benzylic carbocations, and it, we call, sorry, to go back a little bit, we call the previous thing an allylic carbocation because of that double bond. I know I kind of skipped over that naming when we were in the alkenes chapter, but that's where that comes from. Yeah, so the benzylic carbocations are similar to the allylic ones. And I'm sure you can, you can guess why. What I mean by benzylic is a compound that looks like this. So specifically this, don't forget it has a CH2 <clears throat> coming off of it. So yeah, so benzylic is a great thing. So if you see, so the take home message of this is that if you have a tertiary or allylic or benzylic carbocation as your intermediate, you should think FN1. Not, it's not exclusive. You're going to notice there's a couple other factors you can find. That's something to keep in mind. All right, so let's go back up to our FN2. Let me, I should probably put like some kind of barrier between these two so I don't go drifting. Okay. So with SN2, the big factor to consider is what we call steric hindrance. Now I've touched on sterics briefly a few other times. It's literally just the amount of space something takes up. And this is important because of the backside attack, right? So you can imagine, well, let me first do um, the table and then I'll show you what the difference is. So as a general rule, tertiary haloalkanes are almost always SN1. Oh, I saw an S in my brain went, yes. So are almost always SN1. So you can think of this as something that looks like this. These are almost always SN1. Primary haloalkanes are pretty much almost always SN2. So if you have your methyl bromide, right? So let me write out the thing. This is going to be probably an SN2 reaction. And I say almost always because obviously there's always exceptions. But so the big question is what happens with secondary haloalkanes? But well, that's where things get hard. So with secondary haloalkanes, you got to consider other factors.
what are those other factors? I'm so glad that I asked myself that. Let's, let's let me give you an answer. So something that we call beta branching is really important for this. So if you have three beta branches, there's no SN2. I'm sure you're sitting there like, what, what is a beta branch? Well, here we go. So if we have this, this is probably SN2. If you have this, this is probably SN1. So if you're wondering what, it, we still don't get it. So here's the alpha, here's the beta carbon. This is your alpha, this is your beta. And just to avoid making things complicated, I'm gonna drop this methyl group. But yeah, so if you look at the beta carbon, that will tell you if you're trying to decide if it's gonna be SN1 or SN2. The more branching you have, the more likely you're gonna be SN1. All right, so let's consider some other factors here. All right, so if we get into leaving group considerations, right, we've talked so far um, about the halo alkane consider, considerations. I don't know what happened there. So this really depends on, on the stability of the leaving group as an anion. And this is where it starts to get a little tricky. So the best ones are weak conjugate bases. So these tend to be your halogens. So if you have I, Br, Cl, or water as a leaving group, these tend to be really good leaving groups. Whereas chlorine and some other, other ones are not, not great leaving groups. I'll show you what that looks like in action later on. All right, let's go to the next thing to consider <clears throat> is the solvent. So I know up until now, I've kind of, I've told you don't really think too much about the solvent. It's, you know, if you don't know what it is, that's fine. And even now I'm still not gonna be super picky about it, but you should know that, you should know how to describe a solvent and you should have some vague idea of what's happening. So solvents are generally classified as combinations of either protic or aprotic and polar or nonpolar. So you might be able to guess what's happening in the polar nonpolar. We'll get into what protic aprotic means. So protic, you have a protic solvent. It is an hydrogen bond donor. So this is going to be 
water, it's going to be your alcohols, it's going to be your carboxylic acids, right? Because they, they all have, they're all capable of being a hydrogen bond donor. Aprotic is not a hydrogen bond donor. So this is the solvent that we call DMSO. You might see acetonitrile, um, ACN, which looks like that, um, or diethyl ether, which looks like this. Um, and, and DMSO looks like, oh, I think it's just that. It might have two of those. But yeah. So basically, you'll notice that none of them are hydrogen bond donors. Now, they are hydrogen bond acceptors, but they're not hydrogen bond donors. We'll get into what that means right now. So you can have a polar solvent, which is technically defined as a solvent that has a dielectric constant. That's greater than 15. And so we'll talk about why that's important in a second. And then you have your nonpolar solvent, which has a dielectric constant. And this is going to blow your mind when I say this. That's less than five, right? So if you have something between five and 15, you have complications. So the benefit. Um, Let's talk briefly about what the benefit is of having something that's polar versus having something that's nonpolar versus protic, aprotic. So, <clears throat> oh, and to clarify, so when you're talking about a solvent, you can say it is, you know, polar protic, or you can say it's polar aprotic, or you can say it's nonpolar protic. or you can say it's nonpolar aprotic. Now the nonpolar protic is pretty rare. Um, I don't even know if I can think of an example of one, but that's how you use it. So what do, what do you do with this information? Well, the thing is that you can stabilize charges with your solvent. So in the case of a polar solvent, sorry, I don't know, I just I flipped some weird stuff and shenanigans happen. We, the way we describe it is we say that it solvates charges generated in a reaction. What this means is if you have, say, a Cl minus that came off of a compound and you have, um, a polar solvent like water. You can imagine that when it orients itself, why did I do that? That was silly. Clearly I'm drawing and not thinking. Um, you can imagine that the H's will point themselves towards this because the H's are slightly positive while the oxygen is slightly negative. So they'll surround that charge, which will inhibit its ability to reattach, right? This inhibits 
the return of the leaving group. Now, mind you, it can also impact the ability of the nucleophile to approach the carbocation. So it, it, it's a balance between the two. Um, where in the case of a nonpolar solvent, it does not stabilize charge. It doesn't stabilize the charges or solvate anything. Or solvate. Let me fix that left hand. That's a terrible left hand symbol. <laughs> so how does this play into SN1, SN2? So if we're talking SN1, because there are charged intermediates, so the solvent needs to separate and stabilize the charges generated. So typically, if you have an SN1, this will only occur in polar protic solvents only. Whereas SN2 reactions need to avoid solvation of the nucleophile by hydrogen bonding or anything similar. So these work best in polar aprotics. So if you're in one of the other solvents, so a nonpolar protic or a nonpolar aprotic, you, it starts to be kind of a, a battle between SN1 and SN2. We got two, I think, two or three more factors to consider. Let's go back here. All right. I don't even know what color I'm on. I'm just kind of going with it. All right. Oh, let's go to purple. Okay. So this is the structure of the nucleophile. And I'm not going to stop this recording. I'm just going to keep going. I know this one's going to be a little bit long. So let's first we need to talk about what's the difference between a nucleophile and a base. And this is really kind of challenging to get a good handle on. So nucleophilicity. So this is this is technically defined as the kinetic property determined. by the rate the nucleophile causes nucleophilic substitution. In contrast, basicity is an equilibrium property in an acid-base reaction. So 
So they are different. You can talk about the multiplicity of something and the basicity of something, and they're not always the same. You can have something that is a good nucleophile, but not very basic. So, but basicity is often related to nucleophilicity. It's not the same, but they are related. So you can talk about something in terms of its ability to be a good base and its ability to be a good nucleophile. So rules that we use, your strong nucleophiles have a pKa that's greater than 11. Your moderate ones have a pKa that's approximately 11. And your weak nucleophiles have a pKa that's less than 11. Other factors to consider when talking about the nucleophile and trying to determine if something is SN1 or SN2. The stronger the interaction of the nucleophile with the solvent, the weaker it is as a nucleophile. So the lower nucleophilicity. So let's to show, for example, you can have iodine I minus versus say fluorine minus. And I'm gonna pause for a second so I can go get a table to show you how this looks. So I included a table and I did put a couple other tables in for when you, if you print out the PDF notes, it's also in your textbook. But if we compare the, uh, the PKAs of I and F, you can also look, there's a table that tells you that fluorine is a moderate nucleophile, bromine and iodine are really good, right? Because bromine and iodine are right here, Fluorine's down here with chlorine. This is why you'll see when any of us do a reaction, we'll usually use bromine as a our leaving group or our halogen, just because we know it's really good at leaving. It's also really good at being a nucleophile. But if you also think of um, how this works, iodine is much bigger than fluorine. It tends so, and it's got. Um, you can kind of induce its polarization. So it's a better nucleophile than fluorine where the charge is really concentrated. So this is small concentrated charge, which means it's going to interact a lot. It's gonna interact strongly with solvents. Whereas iodine, because it's so big, it's large, it's got, you know, a dispersed charge. It's not going to have a whole lot of interactions with solvent. So as a side note, let me put this in a different color. Let's go back to black for this. If you have a polar aprotic solvent, they're really good at solvating cations, solvating itself. 
um, but not anions. That's just something to keep in mind. Oops. And this does have um, a pretty big impact. So in polar aprotic solvents, so in polar aprotic, basicity dictates nucleophilicity. In let me ah scroll down. In polar protic, polarizability, polarizability. I missed all the letters at the end of that word. Let's try that again. Polarizability dictates nucleophilicity. That's definitely something you want to keep in mind. So if it's a polar protic, it's all about the polarizability. Iodine is more polarizable than fluorine is. That's why iodine's a bigger or better nucleophile in polar protic solvents. In polar aprotic solvents, fluorine is a better nucleophile because it's a stronger base than iodine. Right, because this is the most electronegative, where iodine is not as electronegative. So that's kind of how I want you to approach that. Another factor that impacts um, nucleophile or nucleophilicity that you is dependent on the nucleophile is shape. So shape, or we can call it size, impacts it. So if you have ethoxide, so ETO minus. This is a really, really good nucleophile. If you have tert butoxide, this is a very, very bad nucleophile. One last thing I wanna touch on in our factors to consider section, and then we'll go through beta elimination <laughs> is skeletal rearrangement. So in SN2, there is no rearrangement. And I want you to think about why. Whereas in SN1, often has rearrangement. And if you think back to the mechanism, you might understand why. So an example of this is, if you have, say, uh, let's see here, put that up. So, so let's say you have a chlorine on the end. You have it in methanol. The product you get will be you will get a rearrangement. So note, it's not here. Let me draw it slightly differently so you can track the carbons from the original compound a little better. So this is the difference of 
that. So you'll notice that um, instead of coming off of here, here, actually let me number, because I think that might make it a little easier for you to see what I'm trying to say. So if I go one, two, three, and then four is the ring, I still have one, two, three, four, but if you look, instead of attaching to two, it attached to three. Okay, so that's what I mean by rearrangement. And I also want you to consider why it's a hydride shift, not a methyl shift. I will do examples of um, SN reactions and how you can predict what it's going to be in one of the practice videos. That's the end of the considerations video. Let's talk beta eliminations. Because all nucleophiles, oh, that's excited there. Because all nucleophiles are also bases. Beta eliminations is a competing process with substitution. Write that more efficiently. The beta elimination competes with substitution. So, for example, you could have, what am I doing? I know what I'm doing, but I did it wrong. Okay, so let's say you have an ethane, got a leaving group, and it's got a hydrogen. Okay. If it's going to be substitution, you have a nucleophile that's going to, if this was say SN2, right? it will attack a carbon with the leaving group on it and the leaving group will leave to give you a carbon-carbon with your nucleophile, with your inversion of stereochem, right? Keep my, uh, uh -huh. If you do, if the nucleophile instead acts like a base, Right, it will take this proton, the pair of electrons will move up to form a double bond, and the leaving group will leave. And so you will end up with ethene instead. Here, I won't even write that. So you end up with ethene. This now, what I'm specifically showing you is um, an E2 elimination. I'll get into, I'll explain what that means shortly. So for this class, we are going to focus on oops, focus, not baseball focus, on what we call dehydrohydrohalogenation, which is basically when you have hydrogen and a halogen on neighboring carbons. You introduce a base whatever it may be, and you get 
an alkene plus your conjugate acid plus your leaving group in its uh, charge state. Right, so let me do a little bit of color coding so it's a little bit easier. So this, it's got pink. Oh, no, no. So they end up at the end together. Okay, so it's dehydrohalogenation. So a list of strong bases. that lead to beta elimination more often than substitution, not always, because there are a lot of factors that we keep in mind, and I will go through them shortly, are your OH minus, your OR minus, so this is your alkoxides, as we call them. So this is ETO minus, et cetera. Those are really strong bases. <clears throat> Your NH2 minus, which I'm sure you remember is a really strong base. Circle my charges. Okay. Um, the acetylide anion. I'm glad I spelled it right this time. I'm so embarrassed in the other one. This is your R. Right. So you have that. That's those, that's a really strong base. I know we've used it as a nucleophile, right? And when we're adding carbon chains, something, but that's why we stick primarily to uh, primary halo alkane. So let's do a couple of reactions as an example. If I have this, and let's say this is some, this is a long chain with seven carbons, and I don't feel like drawing all of them. If I introduce terp butoxide, potassium terp butoxide, so you'll see this written as this. This is exactly the same as saying KOTBU. It's kind of just personal preference how you write it on the day. The key thing to remember is if you see one of these salts of sodium or lithium or potassium, we're talking about the base. It is usually going to be in its own alcohol, in its own protonated form as a solvent. This will give you your alkene. If we have, so this is one example. Let's go to a second example. Scroll up a little bit so I can see. And I want you to pay attention to what features you see that are overlapping. So this time we're going to use sodium ethoxide, which is a really great great, great base to use. You need a strong base. Sodium methoxide and ethanol. You will get this as your major and this as your minor. The terminal is going to be your minor. Third example. And yes, I, I told you we were going to use a lot of bromine because it's just so much easier to deal with. It's almost Moana, but Moana, but it's not, but it's almost okay. <laughs> you have MeOH plus that. So this is your minor, this is your major. So 
what do you notice about these reactions? So in the first one, you have a, let me change colors. You have a primary halo octane, right? Which so far you're like, oh, it's gonna be substitution. But this is a really bulky base. So it pretty much only ever acts as a base. That's why you got your elimination. And the next two, both of them are tertiary haloalkanes. Right? So you can use smaller bases that are still strong, but it's still, they're both really strong bases. Strong, small base. Now, I want you to pay attention to the major and the minor products. What's the difference between them? If you notice, the major products are the more substituted alkenes. This has a name. This is Zaitsev's, Zaitsev's rule, which is, which if you're doing a beta elimination, so the product is going to be the more substituted alkene. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, if you remember when we talked about like Markovnikov and it was like the least amount of hydrogens, if you look here, this has one hydrogen over here. The minor product has two hydrogens on the end. This minor product has two hydrogens on the end. This one has one hydrogen on the end. So it's the one with the fewest number of hydrogens is your major product if you're doing a beta elimination. So let's get into what the mechanism of a beta elimination is. As I'm sure you've guessed, there are two types. So there is E1, which is similar. It's a similar mechanism to SN1 because the leaving group will leave before of the base attack before base attack. So what this also means is this is always a mixture in the sense that you will always get, if you have an SN1 reaction, you will almost always have some E1 as well. So this is a situation in which, depending on what you want to do, if you can't do something more predictable, like using an SN2 or an E2, which I'll show you in a minute. Um, and you have to use an SN1 or E1, you'll only show me the product that you plan to use, not the other one. All right, so let's get into the mechanism of this. So we'll do blue and orange for this. Okay, so I've got a tertiary haloalkane. I'm, I'm sorry, give me one second. I gotta answer that phone. All right, so we have tert butyl bromide. So we're looking at a tertiary haloalkane. So you should already be thinking something, it's gonna be a one. You may not know if it's an SN1 or E1, but it's definitely a one. The first step of this mechanism is that the bromine is just gonna leave. Like it's just like, yeah, bye, cool. Glad we, glad we had that moment, but I don't need you. And so we're gonna have a tertiary carbocation. Now I'm going to make a point of drawing out these hydrogens as you, if you remember, anytime I do this, it means I'm about to do something to it. So I'm gonna introduce my base. 
what base do I feel like using? We're going to use methanol as my base. Oops. Okay, so it's got the oxygen with a lone pair. Lone pair is going to attack one of the hydrogens, breaking that bond so that you form. This plus your now protonated methanol. So now it's going to have a positive charge. You'll also notice that a lot of the E1, FN1s end up with positive charges, um, and your nucleophiles tend to be neutral. That is something to keep in mind. That is a, a pretty good guide for what's going to happen. Right, it's a good start. If you're gonna do an E2, it's similar, it's similar to an SN2 in that it's what we call a concerted reaction, which means everything happens at once. Why we have multiple names for it, I don't have an answer for you. Okay, so I'll actually, so I'll reverse the colors for the SN2. So if you have this, I'm doing this very specifically. Uh, I'll explain exactly why I'm drawing this way in a second. In this case, we're going to have um, ethoxide. So we're going to have O minus. It will attack the protons. Remember, negative to positive. Those pair of electrons will go down to form the double bond. At the same time, it'll force the bromine to go. Oh, no, I need more hopefully that didn't make it confusing for you so now you're going to have your double bonded your alkene you have br minus and you have ethanol so i want you to notice that in the case of e2 and also sn2 you tend to have negative charges it's not a hard and fast rule but it's a good thing to keep in mind So those are the reactions. Now let's talk about regioselectivity. Because if you remember, we talked a lot about we talked a lot about regioselectivity for in other reactions, if it's Markovnikov or anti-Markovnikov. So now we're gonna talk a little bit more like Zaitsev's rule versus um Zaitsev's rule versus yeah, sorry, there it is. All right, so if you have, if you're talking E1, you're going to get the more substituted, the more stable alkene, as we call it, more stable alkene. So this is Zaitsev's. And you may have rearrangement. So there's not really, so that's, that's how we define the radioselectivity of an E1. If we're talking E2, it's usually, but not always, as I said, unless there's sterics, unless there's a steric issue. And I'll talk to you about what that means shortly. So hold your breath. Um, this tends to result in trans alkenes. 
And if you have a secondary halo, halo alkane and a strong base, you're going to get E2 preferentially over FN2. So secondary, secondary halo alkanes are kind of the most difficult thing to keep in mind. All right, so let's talk stereoselectivity. So stereoselectivity. So when we talk about stereoselectivity, we're only talking about SN1. Or, sorry, SN2. Because SN1 doesn't have it because that carbocation intermediate. So this requires, and this is a hard require, the hydrogen and the leaving group. Why did I say this was? Hold on. This requires a hydrogen and a leaving group to be, we call it anti-periplanar or anti-planar, to allow for backside attack, because it's always the backside situation there. Okay, so let's, let's bring it back to some Newman projections, which I'm sure you were like, oh, I hope we never have to do those again. Nope, they're back. Um, so if we have this, right, poorly drawn Newman's okay. So if our, our leaving group needs to be here and our hydrogen needs to be here. So this is what we mean by anti-periplanar. Uh, this is the equivalent to saying H is here, leaving group is here. And then you have um, your other things. Whatever they may be. Okay, so this is so let's this is the part, this is the anti-periplanar. This is what it looks like in the molecule. This this trans kind of orientation. So let's do an actual example. And this is an example, every time I do it, I have it until the end. So I apologize in advance because there will be a moment in this recording where there'll probably be a long pause where I go, what is even happening? That's because, yeah, things are tough. Okay. So let's make We're going to rotate our molecule, make things a little easier for us. We're going to show, we're going to do different groups because I want, I want you to understand. And I will make a model kit as well and show that on camera. But we're going to go through the mechanism first. So what will happen is You'll have a base. It will take this proton. A pair of electrons will go in front of the double bond. And this bromine that's on the adjacent carbon is the one that's going to leave. So if I was to draw this in a parallel, so if we go back to our Newman projection, so what is happening is going to be 
hydrogen. There's my bromine, my bromines, and my funnel groups. So this is the equivalent of saying this base is going to take this proton. I drew that a little bit. Now it's going to take that proton. So this pair of electrons is going to go down and form a bond. It's hard to draw a mechanism in Newman. That's why we don't do it. Um, and as a result, this bromine that's at the bottom is going to leave. So what happens is, so they're, they're both going to the same thing. So I'm going to put them back in this. Is you're going to end up with a Br double bond, phenyl, phenyl. And a hydrogen. In contrast, you can have an alternative structure where should I keep I'm gonna keep the color the same and hopefully that's not too confusing. If I have this always takes me a minute to draw. So please forgive me as I figure out how this, despite the fact that I have it in my notes, I always doubt my notes and go like, did I draw that correctly? And I'm like, I'll figure it out in class. I never figure it out in class. I don't know who I'm lying to. I'm lying to myself is what's happening. Um, so this is supposed to be the equivalent of, and I will, once I draw the Newman, I'll convert it into the wedge dash above. So if this is my H, this is my H, and this is my funnel, and this is my funnel, and this is my bromine, and this is my bromine. If I have my base come in, it'll either attack this one again and give you the same mechanism, or it will attack this hydrogen, which comes down and boops this one. So hold on, let me let me draw, let me fix the drawing so it makes sense why this is happening. I think this is supposed to be wedged. This is going to be dashed. What did I do? I don't know. Let's figure it out. Wedge and dash on my fennel. I think. Nope, you can't be wedged. Do you have to be dashed? Nope, that's not going to work. All right, hold on. We're going to get, I'm sorry, this is going to be a slow part of the video. So if you need to hit the fast forward for a little bit, feel free while I figure out what I am doing. Because I know that they can't be the same. So I think this is a wedge and that's a dash, right? Because if you put these in space, yeah, so those are opposite each other. Everybody's opposite each other. Okay, cool. Awesome. Whew, that took way more than it should have. Um, no, I don't even know if that's right. Hold on. I rotate that. Yep, that side's right. If that's the back, so I'm looking at what the front is. Yeah. Okay. So that's how it looks every time. Every time it takes me forever. Sorry about that. So then your product is going to be Br phenyl. So notice that the starting stereochem is going to greatly impact the stereochem of your product. So if you have um, you know, a cis arrangement, cis is a strange thing to say because it's not, um, it's not 
like cis trans it's a, lin it's a linear compound you'll end up with a kind of cis um okay i mean it's trans if we're talking so let me not do that because that's gonna be really confusing but your stereochemy your product depends on how your starting material is organized so let me pause and find a model kit and i will show you what this looks like with the model kit okay so to put that in perspective i don't have my headset on so you can't even hear me i'm sorry all right so this is our molecule the white is hydrogen. The reds are bromine. And the blues are going to be our phenyl. I'm going to write that down. Come on, forget about two seconds. So H, you really no pen? Okay. So H is white. Red uh, bromines are red. And then phenyls are blue. So real quick, let me reshow you the one note structure so you know what I'm making. So I'm going to set it up so that. My, my hydrogen and my bromines are opposite each other. So hold it so you can see it. Okay, so this is what it's gonna look like, right? The hydrogens are set up that way. The phenyls, which are the blue, are over here. And the bromines are the red. So let's stop the share so you can see this up close and personal. Okay, so this is what you're looking at Newman projections, right? So what happens in the reaction is the base is going to attack this proton in the front, go down here to form a double bond and kick off this bromine in the bottom. When you do that, so let me, let me make that go away. I am a base, all your bases belong to us. That's, I'm too old for that, okay. So when you do that, you can imagine now, so this is our, this, I didn't touch, I didn't rotate anything. This is how it was before, right? The front one had a hydrogen coming up and then there was a red bromine coming here. I just took them off. So when you put this and flatten it out, because double bonds are flat, right? Your blue groups are on the same side because of where they were in the starting process. Now, if I go to the other one, let me show it to you again so you can see what's happening. I started off, if I drew it correctly, which is always, always questionable. Um, hold on, I think it goes. Yeah, okay. So this is going to be my hydrogen. Okay, and this is going to be my bromine. All right. Okay, so this structure is what did I say? Fennel, fennel is blue. Oh dear, hold on. Why didn't I look at the structure before I did it? I don't know. Um, okay, so yeah, so this is my new Newman projection <laughs> with the same, same. Trends. So my hydrogen is here. The bromine is going to leave us here, right? They're right opposite each other. But the phenyl groups, you'll notice, are on opposite sides. I might need to update that drawing. Is there a drawing? I don't know. I'll update the drawing if I need to. So when the base comes in, it's going to take this hydrogen. Sorry, I don't want to come off. Right? I haven't rotated anything. It's going to take off this back bromine, right? Because it's going to form a double bond. When you form your double bond, so when you flatten everything out, the phenyl groups are opposite each other. So that's what's happening in these um, E2 eliminations. You have to have that opposite effect. So let me, if you, so if you need to receive that, feel free to rewind. 
Um, I'm going to update the drawing to make sure that I drew it correctly. So where's my mouse? Hold on. Okay, so I fixed the drawing. So you'll notice I moved the bromine down to the bottom and I made it dashed on the right side. And on the I made the hydrogen the line on the right side of the second molecule. So, that's so this gives you, so then this, so in the left one, your phenyl groups are cis. In the right one, your phenyl groups are trans. So you do need to pay attention to the stereochem of your starting material when you're drawing these products. That is really, really important. So what does this look like when you introduce a ring, right? Because rings are always the thing. So again, this is where chair confirmation would have been would be really, really helpful. So if I have, let's put an isopropyl group here and let's put a chlorine here. So these are cis to each other. So what does this look like in chair confirmation? Because that's what's going to really help you understand what's happening. So I'll put the isopropyl equatorial rate because that's lowest energy. That means that the chlorine is going to be axial. As you can imagine, there's an axial hydrogen here. There's an equatorial hydrogen here. You have two options. Right, because they have to be anti, we said anti-periplanar. So your base, whatever it may be, so let's say it's methoxide, so can take this proton, which will then come down, form a double bond here, and kick off your chlorine. Or as an alternative, you could have your methoxide. Take this proton, bring in the bond, and kick off the chlorine. Now, note that these are effectively the same proton because this is not an SN1 or E1 reaction. The leaving group's not leaving first, so there's no need for carbocation stability. That is not the issue. So when you do this, you're thinking, okay, I have to consider Zaitsev's rule. So if the reaction is sodium methoxide and methanol, again, it's almost, all, it's almost always in its own alcohol to avoid shenanigans and tomfoolery. Your major product is this. It's your more substituted alkene. Your, maybe I should change the color slide. Yeah, let me color code which one's happening. So this is the orange mechanism. Oh, no, no, okay, okay. The minor product will be, really, you're just gonna pretend like I didn't do that? Okay. The minor product will be this one. Okay, so what's coming into play is a combination of Zaitsev's and your antiplanar hydrogens. So I want to bring up an example that tends to get people a lot of the time. Let me see if I have that text, the textbook with me. Give me one second. Actually, there's a couple other, uh, another thing I want to point out. So we talked about you have to be anti-planar in order for this reaction to happen. So if we did an alternative reaction, with 
similar molecular formulas. Let me put a dotted line so we don't get too confused with what's happening here. That was a really bad dotted line. So let's say we do, you have your same isopropyl, but now your chlorine is trans. So when you convert this into chair conformation, again, the isopropyl is gonna stay uh, equatorial, but now the chlorine is also equatorial. Now, to make this a little bit more obvious, I'm going to do a chair flip. Oh, wow, what was that nonsense? So as you can see, you're not the only person who still struggles with drawing chairs. Like I said, I really only draw them one way. This will give me my isopropyl as axial and my chlorine as axial. This means that if there is an E2 reaction, it's not gonna go here, not here, because this isn't an anti-planar hydrogen. The only place you can find an anti-planar hydrogen is going to be here. So your base will only come in, whatever base it may be, I don't have a lot of space, so I'm not gonna, that's a really bad B. Um, we'll take this proton, double bond it down and make this leave. So the only product you get is going to be this. Because you can't go the other way because that is not an antiplanar hydrogen. And the reaction will not go if you don't have an antiplanar hydrogen. Another thing to consider, so we talked a lot in SN2 about and the factors that influence it, is sterics. So now, if you... Do. And you should also think of like, what's the name of this? So make sure you include a stereochem when you do it. Anyway, so let's do another example. I do want to point out some, another factor you have to consider, which is sterics. So if you have this compound, so I haven't drawn stereochem. The product of, you know, base, whatever it may be, is going to be this. The question is, is cis or trans going to react faster? And so you're going to want to draw this in chair confirmation and see if there's a steric consideration that you need to keep in mind when the base comes in. Okay. Now I'm going to pause and go into a quick ending that goes over the differences between substitution and elimination and how you can make a decision behind them, between the two. I said behind them, oh, silly me. So how do you decide if a reaction is going to be substitution or elimination? And how do you decide if it's going to be SN1, SN2, E1, or E2? So as I mentioned, SN1 and E1 kind of always go together. You can't really separate them. So really you're trying to decide between SN2, E2, and SN1. So if you look at the type of alkyl halide, if you have a methyl or a primary, SN2 is heavily favored. You don't, we really don't get SN1 unless with the exception of, as you can see, allylic and benzylic cations. Those are the only times SN1 becomes a possibility. Otherwise you're pretty much always SN2. 
once you get into secondary and tertiary, you have to pay attention to other factors such as the solvent. So if you're in an aprotic solvent with a good nucleophile, you're going to be SN2. If you're in a protic solvent, which is usually a pretty good giveaway, with a poor nucleophile, you'll get SN1, but you also have to pay attention to the fact that you will also get rearrangement. If you have a tertiary um, alkyl halide, you don't get SN2. You pretty much only get SN1. And as far as the stereochem selectivity, you get an inversion in SN2, and in SN1, you don't. So let's do a couple of example problems. Let me um, hide the notes. Okay. We're going to switch to this. So if you have this reaction, what kind of reaction is it? Well, it's given to you, so you know it's going to be a substitution because you went from having um, yeah, an iodine having an OH, you know it's substitution. So then the question is, I don't know why I said, oh, I know it's there, okay. So you look at this and go, okay, it's a substitution. What kind of substitution is it? You have a really good leaving group. You have a good nucleophile. It's a primary haloalkane, although there is beta branching, even still, it is most likely going to be SN2. So the configuration, or let me see, hold on. You will have this. You're looking most likely at an SN2. However, it's not the chiral center in this molecule. The chiral center is this middle carbon. So you can figure out what the configuration is going to be. If we go to the next problem, yeah. um, so questions like this, which you may see in your quiz, SN2, you want to look at your primary haloalkanes. So, so far, you know, between methyl and ethyls, they're all pretty similar. So that's not going to be the deciding factor. You do have um, a chloride versus a bromide. Bromide is a better leaving group. There's a good chance that that's going to be, it's the chloride is not going to be the one that is the highest rate. Then you look at the solvent. And so you want a protic solvent. So, you know, methanol is not going to be it. Oops. Yeah, so methanol is a protic solvent. So you don't want that. You don't want that. HMPA is, I feel like it's an acid. So it's not going to be um, yeah. HMPA. Hmm. So I'm not sure what HMPA is. So we have to come back to it. Water is not a good nucleophile. So that's not going to be it. Chloride is not the greatest nucleophile. So that's not going to be it. Hydroxide is okay. Ammonia is, it's, it's, it's okay. It's not great. Um, but you know what? Hydrogen sulfide as a minus charge is a good nucleophile. Methyl bromide is a primary haloalkane, and I'm pretty sure HMPA is an aprotic uh, polar solvent. So this is going to be, five is going to be the one with the highest rate. The questions you'll get asked are a little less complicated. You'll, you should be able to figure it out based on even the structure of the haloalkane or the base. 
let's see, what other questions do I have here? I'll just clear out my annotations. Um, I don't know, I don't want to leave that question. Let's see here. So you'll get questions like this, like which would react fastest in the substrate substitution reaction? So you need to think about what kind of substitution reaction we're looking at. This is probably, we could also look at the compound. So we're looking at the difference of OTOS. TOS is a really good, makes this a really good leaving group. So A has a really good leaving group. B is okay. Bromine's a good leaving group, but it's a secondary. C is okay. It's a primary halo alkane, but it's got beta branching. Four is a pretty good leaving group with bromine. Five has a good leaving group, but it's secondary. So it's not going to be two, three, or five. So you're looking at one versus four. And in this case, the answer is going to be A, because tossel is a much, much better leaving group than bromine is. Let's see, is there anything else, any other problems that would be really... So questions like this, like which one will give the fastest SN1? If you do one, and this is something I want you to pay attention to, your carbocation is going to be directly on the ring. So you're not going to have the opportunity for resonance. And two, you have a benzylic cation once the bromine leaves. Three, you have a tertiary carbocation, which is pretty stable. Four is an allylic carbocation, which is also pretty stable. E is a benzylic carbocation, but it's a double benzylic carbocation, which I'm sure as soon as I said that, you went, oh, well, the answer is clearly, hopefully, obviously, five, because you have double the stability. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about how do you make the decision between SN1, SN2, um, E1, E2? So let's, oh, oh, no. I don't need to do that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to show you another table that compares. All right, E1 versus E2. So with E1, you don't really see it with primary carbocations because they're really unstable. E2 is favored if you get elimination, but you require a sterically hindered strong base, which your favorite sterically hindered strong base from now until you're done with me is tert butoxide. Okay, so you always want to use TBUO minus. You can put it with whatever cation you like. You can do sodium, potassium, lithium, whatever you want. That's what that is. Secondary, you get a reaction. You can't get E1 and you can't get E2. And so you need to consider other factors once we get into that uh, arena. I'm looking for, I know there's like a flow chart. Here we go. I found the flow chart. So how do you decide? Let's look at the flow chart. This is actually a pretty decent flow chart. It's a good way to figure it out. So start off by deciding, is it primary, secondary, or tertiary? If it's primary, you have no SN1 or E1. If it's tertiary, you have no SN2. So really the question mark is, okay, so let's go through it all. So if we have a primary or a sterically unhindered or something that's not stabilized, like a lilic or benzylic, you have to look at the nucleophile or base. Is it really strong or is it hindered? So if you have a tert butoxide or a really strong amine base, you can get E2. This is a little funky though, because if the nucleophile or base is a really good nucleophile, then you're gonna get substitution. 
okay, the speed between rapid and slow is not important. If we go to tertiary, so let's go on the third one, um, you have to ask, <laughs> is the nucleus, nucle nucleophile or base a strong base? If it is, you're getting an alkene via E2. <clears throat> if the solvent is polar protic, then you're going to get SN1 and E1. Um, if and then if it's not, you get a mixture of all three, as I'm sure you noticed here. And this is what makes sorry, and this is what makes this super super hard to figure out. If we go to the secondary, if you have a strong base, if your nucleophile base is a strong base, you're getting an alkene versus E2. If it's a good nucleophile, it's going to be SN2. Depending on if the solvent though is polar protic, protic we're talking SN1 E1, and if you have some other complications, then it could literally be any of them, SN1, SN2, E1, E2. So this is why this is such a challenging, challenging chapter because you have all the possibilities and you have to consider them all the time. So let's look. So there's another tab uh, table that will give you a little bit more information. You I would recommend looking for tables online, seeing if you can find one that you like, but I'm gonna write out the one that I have for you. So if we're trying to decide, so if you are trying to decide between SN1 and E1, you always get both. But you will see SN1 more than E1 if a weak base is used. But it's still really difficult to predict. hard to predict. There you go. All right. If you're trying to decide between SN2 and E2, that's a little bit easier to do. You want to pay attention, first of all, to beta branching. And to some extent, you also want to pay attention to um, so beta branching, or you can have alpha branching. So like meaning if it's like secondary, this will favor E2 if you have that branching. You also want to consider if you have high nucleophilicity, nucleophilicity, then it favors SN2, favors SN2. If you have high basicity, it favors E2. So again, this is where you're like, wait, but nucle good nucleophiles happen to also be good bases. How do you decide? So you can use pKa. Remember the rule of 11? pKa helps. So for instance, Rs minus is a nucleophile. You're going to get SN2. In contrast, RO minus is a base. So you're going to get e, mostly E2, but not always. It's not, it's not a hard and fast rule. Something you can do to impact whether you get a nucleophile or electrophile is temperature. And this is a good way to tell me what you want. So if you have high temperature, you're probably looking at E2. Low temperature is going to be SN2. So you can always use heat 
I always, and I use this as my indication for heat. If you need to, if you're trying to tell me you want it to be an elimination, not a substitution. All right, if we look at primary alkyl groups, so if you have a primary haloalkane, it's not going to be E1 or SN1. And this is the same thing as in the table above. So if you're like, I get it, I don't need to listen to last, feel free at least to fast forward a bit. So no, no E1 and no SN1. If it's a strong base and sterically hindered. So a good way to tell me that that's what you're looking for is to use terbutoxide and terbutanol. This is your way of saying you want an E2. So strong base, base. That's not sterically hindered. I mean, it's not big and bulky. Is mostly SN2, but check the PA. Oh gosh, but check PKA. See if you're at 11 or not. So if you have that PKA table, it's a good thing to have on hand. As I mentioned, secondary alkyl groups are the really challenging one. If you have a secondary haloalkane, if you have a strong base, it's probably going to be E2. If you have, oh, wow, I don't even know what I was writing there. My hand just kind of just gave up on me. Okay. So if you have a weak base, but it's a good nucleophile, which again is possible, you look at the difference between sulfur and oxygen. So size is really a good factor here, you're looking at SN2. So this is something like if you're talking S minus, anything S minus or I minus, like if you're big, if you're a big ion, right? You're a good nucleophile, but you're not a very good base because you don't, that charge isn't concentrated in one spot. If you have a bad nucleophile and you're in a polar protic solvent and you have high T, high temperature, you're looking at SN1, E1. And finally, if you have a tertiary alkane, there's no SN2, just not possible. You have a strong nucleophile, which will also be a strong base. You're looking at E2. If you have polar protic, and high temperature, you're looking at SN1, E1. And again, as I mentioned, you can't separate the two. So you kind of always write them together. Okay, one thing I will mention is we're not gonna talk about the neighboring group effect. So that's if you have a compound that looks like this. When this chlorine leaves, however it does it, the lone pairs on sulfur can come in and temporarily stabilize and that'll impact the reaction. So we're not going to talk about this. This is really important if you're going into pharma or biochem, um, anything like that, because this is this was like the original mustard gas. So all of those um, chemical weapons that were used in like the World Wars that were mustard gases were like this. And they were really they're really problematic because of that neighboring group participation. So. That's the end of the content. I will make a video or two going through how you would um, 
going through some SN1, SN2, E1, E2, and then doing some prediction problems.